0: Afternoon, everyone. Finally getting the hang of saying afternoon. Finally. So, though I didn't preach on the gospel passage last week, I really hope you've been tracking with the gospel readings uh, the past few weeks. A lot has been happening uh, with Jesus and the disciples. We're going to take just chapter 9 alone. Okay? It begins with a really high watermark. It begins with a transfiguration. Okay? Very high, high, high watermark. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Right? They go up to the mountain. Uh, God the Father echoes and affirms what he spoke over Jesus at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a dove. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Uh, glorious, incredible, and probably terrifying too. So that happened at the beginning of nine. Okay, And all four of them head back down the mountain. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. As Peter, James, and John are wondering uh, what this all means. As they're coming down, they're greeted by a commotion of a crowd. And this is the next part of chapter 9. Jesus' disciples, and by that I mean the remaining nine who were not at the transfiguration, they're arguing with the scribes. And there's some dispute as to why they can't cast this demon out of this small boy. That was, I believe, last week's uh, gospel passage. It has that great line, and the father says, I believe, help my belief. Okay? His disciples could not do it, so Jesus steps in. Okay? So he does that, and later on, in privacy, the remaining nine, they say, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Which is a very fair question, because Jesus, like, you did give us the authority to do this, right? And the Gospel showed that it does. It had to be a little confusing, maybe a lot of it confusing. And Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out by prayer. So those nine didn't fare so well. So let's think of that. They have a very public failure. Humili- humiliations. You've got the nine have experienced that, and you have the other three have experienced the transfiguration. Keep that in mind. That leads us into our passage, 30 to 37, Mark 9. So they shake it off, they get on the road, and they're traveling through Galilee to Capernaum. And Jesus, it says Jesus didn't want anyone to know. Now, here's wh- here's how it would have looked as they journeyed through Galilee, when a rabbi and his students traveled, the footpaths were usually very narrow, and so it was single file. Students never, 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 ever did. I mentioned never, they'd never lead. Who's at the head of the pack? The rabbi is, always, and they are behind him. It's single file, just like follow the leader, which we learn in school. So pupils are never in front. Always the rabbi who's at front. So when you think of phrases like following Jesus... Uh, let's take on a, a very literal meaning, like literally following your rabbi around on these footpaths. And some disciples would even mimic their rabbis in their form of dress. So I immediately have to wonder, okay, think, put, put that human brain on. doesn't take too long of that human desire to make that line a pecking order. Who's right next to Jesus? Who's really close to the front? Who's towards the front of the line? And who's the caboose? Who's kind of straying to hear what he's saying? Not quite catching everything. Fair to say. So they've taken leave of the crowds. They're, They're going one by one. They're on the road, and Jesus didn't want anyone to know because he was going to teach the disciples. Now, Jesus retreats from the public eye at times. We don't always know why, but the best guess I think here is his intention is to kind of huddle up And regroup with the disciples, uh, teaching them away from the crowd, away from the distractions. And this particular teaching, he begins, as they're walking, it's all about his rejection, his death, his resurrection. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. When he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They're afraid to ask. And this is verses 31 to 32. Now, this is Jesus' second mention, his second passion prediction To all twelve. Peter, James, and John, it's their third time. I got a private mention at the Transfiguration. What kind of Messiah they expect Jesus to be is in question. He's showing them I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. Okay? The way ups, the way down. Jesus talks about this all the time. Look, I'm going to be delivered into uh, the hands of my betrayers, kind of prophesying what Judas is going to do. I'm going to be killed after three days. I will rise, fulfilling so many prophecies about Jesus, mainly from Isaiah. Now, we know that the suffering Messiah part tripped them up. We can make a really firm guess that the resurrection part of the teaching probably did, too, if they even knew what Jesus meant. Now, the resurrection was a very ambiguous and hotly debated issue amongst the Sanhedrin. So disciples don't get it. They don't get it, and they're afraid to ask Jesus about it. What I want to highlight here because really the focus is more 33 to 37. We'll get there in just a sec. What Jesus is describing is the way of the cross. The way of the cross, what it means to follow him. So if you hear anything in 30 to 32, please hear that. This is the way of the cross. This is what it means to follow me. So he's re-educating these disciples. And this is, I believe, the setup for what we're going to hear in just a second. So here's Jesus. Let's think of the different head spaces. Here's Jesus, eyes on the prize, that the cross and martyrdom is looming in the distance. And he's teaching them about this on the way to Capernaum. But as for disciples, uh, they're in a very different headspace than Jesus. Let me prove that to you. Verses 33 to 37. So when they arrive at some unnamed house of Capernaum, as they get there, Jesus asks them a question in private. And perhaps he knows they've just had enough public shame for one day, you know, after that beating the nine of them took. I don't know. He says, what were you discussing on the way? The word Jesus used for discussing here, uh, it is carries with it a very strong sense of like debate and intensity. So it's not a a calm, composed discussion. It's not it. As they traveled, it was very lively and it was animated. And he heard them arguing or perceived them arguing uh, up and down the line. So this is one of Jesus' famous leading questions. Boy, is he good with these. What were you discussing heatedly, better way to say it, on the way? This is the rabbinic wind up. They're ashamed. And they keep quiet. They had argued with one another. Ah, there's the revelation as to who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? Why this topic? Well, it can seem random. It can seem a bit out of nowhere. But I think if we recall again, these two groups earlier in Mark 9 and the two events they each took part in, I think explains potentially a lot. So you got the transfiguration group, right? Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They see Jesus in his glory. They see Elijah. They see Moses. They hear the voice of God the Father. That's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. Don't get better than that. Then you have the other nine who are trying to cast out the demon and the boy, and they can't. Think they might have been a little rattled, confused, or frustrated a bit by that? I'm thinking so. Hadn't Jesus given them authority to heal the sick, cast out demons? What gives? A lot of questions. So we've got two different groups and two very different spiritual experiences. Now let's put those two groups of people together. Boop. Think about group dynamics, think about human nature. They get back together, they travel to Capernaum. Think there might have been any tension, perhaps? Shame, jealousy, frustration, any strong feelings at play? I'm gonna vote, yeah, probably so. And are we really that surprised that some conflict emerged? I don't think so, not really. I think it makes tremendous sense. So during the journey, uh, dissension arises. Not only surprising, the disciples argued up and down the line as they traveled, and I have to wonder if the "who's the greatest" if that question was their way of saying, "Jesus, who's your favorite?" You know what I mean? Jesus, who's who's your favorite? That kind of cuts to the heart of the matter. Who's going to sit at your right and your left, Lord? Who's going to who's going to do that? Who do you love most? Who's the closest in the line? Who's in the pecking order? It can get pretty petty, and we understand it, right? Jesus has taken these two subgroups within the 12 and allowed them to have two very different journeys. Two very different journeys. Now I'm going to ask you a question, and it's loaded as can be. Was his intent to sow dissent amongst them? Was that the intent of what Jesus did, do you think? Why he allowed that? Give me a nod of the head. Yes or no? Okay, I'm seeing no's. Right. I think he allowed this argument to ferment and to arise in order to reveal their hearts to them. He allowed something to be seen that was not seen otherwise. It, it came to the surface, and then he speaks right into it. He, spe- he steps into the fray, and he speaks into it. And here comes the second part of the lesson about the way of the cross, built upon the first. And he sits down, and he calls the twelve. Jesus does not sit down because he is tired, and Jesus is not taking a load off. This is what a rabbi does when he summons and gathers his students. It says, this is the cue, I'm about to teach. So he sits, that's their cue. Hey guys, huddle up, listen up, this is important. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and he must be the servant of all. This is 35. Very familiar lines. Jesus hits on this a lot. Recall that image of Jesus, the rabbi, and his pupils, the disciples, walking along in that straight line, along those narrow footpaths, follow the leader, the pecking order. Anybody jockeying for position in line? Anybody want to be closest to Jesus? Maybe Jesus is calling them and calling us to be the very last servant of all. Maybe it's time to be the caboose, in other words. Servanthood, I know you guys know this, Such a massive theme in the life of Jesus. I know you know this, but a servant to God the Father, submissive to the end. A servant to his disciples at the last supper, washes their feet for crying out loud. Takes on the lowest role in the house, something a slave would do, and he does that. So shows that he's humble and willing to get his hands dirty for us. I'm doing this so that you might do it for each other. Do you understand what I've done for you, Jesus says. Servanthood. So to definitively answer their question, who's the greatest? That's still on the table. Jesus brings a young child into their midst. It's really tender. Um, And it must have been a pretty, fairly small child. It was an infant, but um, he's able to to gather up the child in his embrace. So it's a really tender, close term. It's like holding the child in the crook of your arm. Okay, it's very, very tender. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Okay? Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. This is verse 37, and this is kind of this is where it really comes together. Why is this child? why is a child example? Is it because they're so sweet, and so cute? What do you think? Is that why he does it? Look, children are so innocent, they're so sweet, cute, innocent, pure, loving. No. No, they can be, but they're not always. That's not why. Jesus isn't making some sort of qualitative statement about kids. Be innocent and sweet like that. No, that's a very sentimental and completely wrong reading of this verse. In that culture, a child was of a very, very, very low social standing. They had very little to no rights. Little to no power. Completely dependent upon the care of others. Mom, dad, community. So about the only person lower on the... Social rank was someone who was a slave. Someone who was a slave. So Jesus is inviting the disciples to change, change, to become like little children. That's a very radical reorientation, very radical. Moving away from scrambling to climb that social ladder of honor and instead moving in the other direction towards a full blown acceptance of just insignificance. So this is the choice. This isn't just going to happen. It's not an acceptance or some sort of resignation. Well, uh, sigh, guess I'll be small, independent, insignificant. Okay, Jesus, fine. It's something you seek out, something you choose. You choose to be small, uh, to be last, to allow God to be the one who lifts you up if that's what he chooses to do. To get small, or I love to say get low, no less important in 37. Uh, we can't miss the call to welcome others here, to receive others. That's absolutely in that last verse. To receive those who have nothing to offer us. Jesus says that's like welcoming me. Okay? Welcoming people who have nothing to offer us at all. That's Jesus says like you're welcoming me when you do that. And in his final word in this lesson, Jesus shifts the disciples' focus off of themselves. Who's the greatest? And he points them outwards. He points them towards others. That's missional. It's very, very missional what he's doing. And that's it. There's a simplicity to this passage that I think is beautiful. I think it's compelling. You, know, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Okay, be small. Don't seek to get ahead like the world does. The kingdom of God about meekness. It's about humility. It's about allowing God to lift you up. And place you where he wants you. So, you know, you don't go seeking power, status, position, greatness or status. It's just not something we're to grasp or to pursue. So I love this. And the way the phrase that came to mind as I was looking at this passage, sitting with it's like, this is the church of the low road. This is the church of the low road. What if the church of our church, and say big C church, little C local. What if we really grasp that lived Into that. I mean, really live if we lived and walked that path of being small and humble. I want you to imagine for a minute what our testimony to the world might be like, how different it might be. It would cause some perplexity. Perplexment, is that a word? I don't think it is, but you guys get my meaning. But a good sense of intrigue. Show that we mean and believe in the God that we serve, the church of the low road. I like that. I like that a good deal. When someone asked St. Augustine, you know Augustine? He was very skilled as an orator. When I asked him, hey, what's the chief rule in rhetoric? And they probably didn't say, hey, but you know what I mean. What's the chief rule in rhetoric? He replied, delivery. What was the second rule, Augustine? Delivery. And what's the third rule in rhetoric? Delivery. Then Augustine said, but if you ask me what the chief rule is in Christianity, first, second, third, and always, I would answer humility. Humility, being content with being small, actively choosing downward spiritual mobility, the church of the low road. Now, I want to carry this forward. I'm going to close here. Um. I want to carry this forward a little bit with a final point that is related to being a child that I think is important for us to grasp. I think it applies very much to our situation as a church where we find ourselves. Small children are dependent. I didn't make that point that that heavily earlier, but small children are very dependent. And in a healthy family, uh, children are not ashamed of of that dependence. Uh, They have no shame regarding their need. They don't have any of that. In a healthy family, uh, shame uh, or resignation or deprivation, those are not defining categories for a child. Children know they can come ask a mom or dad for help for things that they lack, right? Mom and dad are a safe harbor for their needs. Now, I think, or and yet, we struggle with this area of dependence because it reveals our vulnerability it reveals our nakedness before God, and it reveals, it, it's our, it reveals our weakness. The very things that we work so hard to hide from God, and probably each other as well, are those very things that we need to bring before God, our Heavenly Father, together. The James passage, you do not have because you do not ask. So our relationship with God, I mean, I'm going to play off the Heavenly Father, and part of God is to be one of dependence, an unashamed dependence, of being aware of our needs, sort of dependence, and willing to ask God to meet them, sort of dependence. This recalls Jesus's words in Matthew seven and Luke eleven. If a child asks their earthly father for bread, his father's not going to give him a stone. If a child asks his earthly father for a fish, he's not going to give him a serpent. How much more will your father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask? If an earthly father can do that and figure that out, think of the good gifts your heavenly father has for you when you ask. Now, that is not a catch-all for God the gumball machine. I get to ask for something, I put my spiritual theological token in, I turn the crank, and I get what I ask for. No, God will give us what we need. Though as children, we often don't know what that is. God does. God knows what we truly need. Uh, We often don't. But we're still commended to acknowledge our need and to ask, to trust God, to meet us in that. And we know that God gives good gifts. He does not give harmful gifts. That is not in the nature of God. It's not who he is. So I'll end here. Uh, By and large, I think this childlike dependence I'm speaking about is a lot about what our family meeting is, will be about next Sunday. I really do. We're going to voice our need together. We're going to ask for God's wisdom together. We're going to come to him as his children, laying our need at uh, the Holy, uh, our Heavenly Father's feet, believing that he's going to hear our cry of our hearts. He's going to see us, trusting and allowing him to be the lifter of our heads and to meet us in whatever way is best. That's what it's about to position us wherever he wants us in this world for our good and for the good of others who do not know him just yet.